think, is in the second category. She's not usually too keen on surprises. It was her birthday on Thursday, and um, I wrapped her presents in wrapping paper so that she would have to open them or she would have to assign helpers to open them for her. So she couldn't see the presents, but truth be told, I don't think she was that surprised at some of the presents that I bought her because she had already hinted as to what she might like and where I could get it and what day I might like to go and get it and how much it costs. So she's not a huge fan of surprises and I'm not complaining because it makes life a lot easier uh, for me. But some of us love surprises. It's good to be uh, familiar with Scripture. It's good to come on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, uh, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday night. It's good to do our own uh, readings of Scripture in the house. The more we learn from Scripture, the more we remember Scripture, the more we let the Bible sink deep into our souls, the better equipped we will be to live our lives wisely and well for the Lord. But one of the dangers as we become more and more familiar with the stories in Scripture is that it becomes more and more easy not to be filled with wonder and awe at these stories which become so familiar to us. Scripture is full of surprises and how quickly we tend to forget them. The Gospels are full of surprises. Jesus was full of surprises. Jesus surprised people all the time. He surprised people, I'm sure, when he made a Samaritan the hero of the story that he told, the story that we now call the Good Samaritan. He would have shocked people as he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well because she was a woman, she was a Samaritan, she was living in sin. Three good reasons why a Jewish rabbi was not culturally or socially supposed to uh, speak to that person, and yet he spoke to her. It was a surprise, I'm sure, to the disciples as he stooped to wash their feet. That was a, regarded as the lowest of the low when it came to tasks and duties. You would assign that job to your lowest servant or your lowest slave. Still, in the Middle East today, feet and shoes are seen as unclean, lowly things. So you'll remember when the uh, big statue of Saddam Hussein was toppled, they all kind of ran up to the statue, took their shoes off and started hitting the statue with their shoes because that was a way of showing their disdain, their disrespect towards uh, this man who had committed such atrocities. It would have shocked the disciples as Jesus stooped to wash their feet. What rabbi washes the feet of his followers? What rabbi washes the feet of his disciples? Surprises. We are 
in Matthew chapter 21 today, but I'd like for a moment for us to turn to Mark's gospel, not to Mark's account of the triumphal entry, but to Mark chapter 1 and verse 40. Mark 1 verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, verse 42, the leprosy left him and he was cured. A man that is alive and that his heart is still beating and his lungs are still taking in air. He is alive and yet he is dead to all intents and purposes. He is unable to be with his family if he has a wife and children, if he has been um, told that he has leprosy, he has to leave his family to see them no more. His family are allowed to hold a funeral for him because they won't know when he actually dies. He's unable to be with his family. He's unable to be with God's family, God's people. He's not able to worship at the synagogue. He's not able to go for the great festivals or feasts at the temple. He is unable to be with his family. He's unable to be with God's people. He is unable seemingly to be cured, and he comes in desperation before the Lord Jesus. He shows his faith. He says, if you are willing, you are able to make me clean. Jesus speaks. Jesus reaches, there's a surprise. He reaches out and touches the man with leprosy. That's a surprise. And the man is healed. His Health is restored to him, but not just his health, his dignity, his family, his relationship with God, his ability to worship at the synagogue and at the temple, his freedom, his life is given back to him by Jesus. How does he feel in that moment? And what does he want to do? Well, he must feel overjoyed. And he must want to tell people what this man, Jesus, has done for him. Verse 43 says, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. We flick a few chapters on to Mark chapter 8. We will get to Matthew soon, but Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. Verse 29. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. At last, Peter has got it. There are times in the build-up to Mark chapter 8 where he seems to have got it, but he lets it kind of slip through his fingers like sand. But Mark chapter 8, it's really kind of clicked for Peter now. This is the, the pivot of Mark's gospel. Everything hinges on this chapter, and in particular uh, on verse 29. At last, Peter gets it. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. So what do we expect Jesus to tell Peter to do? We expect Jesus to tell Peter, now that he knows who he is, to go and tell everyone. Peter was called to be a fisher of men, was he not? So Jesus at this juncture surely is going to say to Peter, that's right, well done. Now go and tell everyone who you have found, who I am, and make them followers as well. That's what we would expect. But verse 30 says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And we see this time and time again. Surprising, isn't it? It seems strange that Jesus would help and heal and then say, don't tell anyone. It goes against their own human nature. If I help someone, I want them to go and tell everyone what a really nice guy Ross is and how he helped me out. It goes against our human nature, but it seems to go against what we understand to be at the very heart of our faith as Christians as well, does it not? That people would understand who Jesus is and be told not to tell anyone. It's kind of the opposite of what we, we expect, what we are told. We are supposed to, once we have found out who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, to go and tell the world, are we not? Well, why does Jesus time and time again say, keep it quiet, don't tell anyone? Simply because his time had not yet come. Or to put it in the language of Scripture, the language of the Lord himself, his hour had not come. But now as we come to the triumphal entry, this is his time. His hour had come, and as he travels, as he journeys into Jerusalem, he doesn't tell anyone to be quiet or to keep it a secret. He is happy for people to shout from the top of their voices and from the depths of their lungs that he is the Lord, he is the King, he is the Christ, the Anointed One of God. He's happy for them to shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. In Luke's account, Jesus says that if these people did not cry out, then the rocks, the stones would cry out. Now is the time when his hour has come. Now is the time when it has to be declared from the rooftops that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord and he is Saviour. 
But there are still some surprises in store. He is the king sent from God, but what a king. What a king. Firstly, consider a donkey. He rides in on a donkey. If, if we have a, a monarch, a king coming to our country, we might expect uh, him, or if it's a queen, her to, to travel in in a Bentley or a Jaguar, maybe one of those wee cars with the wee flags fluttering from the front of the bonnet, you know, something like that. If they had a king traveling somewhere, they would have expected that king to come on a horse. Because a king was a military ruler apart from anything else. He should come on a big horse, the best horse that the country can muster. Or if not a horse, then a mule, because a mule is a symbol of strength. But Jerusalem, <laughs> Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jerusalem at this time is filled with a tension that none of us have ever known. Rome is in control. Jerusalem is occupied. I was speaking um, on Tuesday whilst enjoying my lunch in the hall about my first trip abroad. I went to a wee town called Valkenburg in Holland with the school. I was in first year, I think. Uh, and I didn't have the best of holidays, to be honest, but there was one thing that I found fascinating. We got to go in to this cave, and in the cave were these menches, basically, that had been written by American soldiers who had liberated this town from the German, uh, the Nazi army who had been uh, occupying. Uh, and there's all these kind of signatures. It's been completely untouched since it was done. And because it's in a cave, it's like preserved perfectly. So it just looks as though this was done, you know, yesterday. And in the middle of all these kind of signatures, one particularly artistic soldier has drawn this glorious picture of what this town was like as they traveled in to liberate it with the tanks and the flags and all that kind of stuff. And it's incredible because you get a real sense that when you walk back out the cave, you're going to walk into, you know, the 40s. It's like it takes you all the way back there. And I remember just imagining what it must have been like for the people in that town, firstly, to be occupied, to have foreign soldiers walking their streets, and secondly, to be liberated. So I can understand that it must have been really hard for the Jews in Jerusalem in the first century to have this occupying force, these Roman soldiers telling them what to do and where to go, what's permitted and what's not permitted. And that's especially so for the Jews because they are continually telling themselves the story of slavery in Egypt and then the Exodus. If there's one thing that they cannot stand that's being occupied, that's being enslaved to another power, if you've ever uh, had the, the Jewish cedar plate and tasted the things that they eat to remember their history, you'll have tasted uh, horseradish and its bitterness. It's supposed to remind them of the bitterness of life lived as a slave. 
And that's what these Jews in Jerusalem and Israel are facing at this time. They feel as though they are slaves to Rome. And so you can kind of understand why they want a king from God to come and to deliver them just as Moses delivered them from slavery in Egypt all those years earlier. But because of that desire, they lose sight of their greater need to be delivered from their sins. And the same is true, I would contend, with the world in which we live. There are all sorts of desires that we have, all sorts of things that we invest our lives in, which are okay, which are understandable, which are important. But if they cause us to lose sight of our greatest need, then it's a tragedy. Their greatest need and our greatest need is to be delivered from our sins. And that's why God sent Jesus. That's why Christ had come. He had come not on a horse to wage war. He had come on a donkey to bring peace. And speaking of peace... He had come not on a horse to wage war, but on a donkey to bring peace. And I don't, I don't know what people thought as they saw the donkey 2,000 years ago. Maybe they thought that was all that was available for him. Maybe they thought, you know, Jerusalem's really, really busy with the, uh, the Passover festival. Maybe they thought that all the other horses had been rented out from the horse rental places around Jerusalem and that was all that was available. But Matthew is crystal clear that that's not the case. This is a deliberate choice by Jesus. He chooses a donkey. Matthew 21 verse uh, verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He came not to wage war, but to bring peace. Peace with God for all who will turn to him and trust in him. And so he comes in humility on a donkey. Why does Matthew mention to animals. Well, one New Testament scholar says this. He says, Matthew wants two animals, a donkey with her little coat beside her, and that Jesus rides them in the sense of having them both as a part of his demonstrations, highly visible symbolism. In other words, Jesus does not ride a stallion or a mare a mule or a male donkey, and not even a female donkey, he rides the most unmilitary mount imaginable, a female nursing donkey with her little colt trotting 
along beside her. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. New Testament scholars can be wrong. But Matthew certainly quotes the prophet Zechariah, who mentions the gentleness of this king. And Zechariah certainly seems to point to the fact that he is riding on a donkey to picture, to portray his gentleness and his intentions. He came a king not to kill, but to die. He came a king to be coronated with a crown of thorns, and so he chose a donkey. He chose a donkey. He's in control. He's not making do. He tells his two disciples where they'll find this donkey and what they're to do when they get it. And sure enough, they find the donkey just as Jesus said. Mark lets us know that they were questioned by bystander just as Jesus suggested they might be. People thought that this was some kind of act of theft, presumably. They intervened, they did their civic duty, and they questioned the disciples, but when they are told that it was for the Master, they let the disciples take it. It's a strange story in many ways, but each of the synoptics, each of the um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this story for us because they need us to know that Jesus is in complete control. He's about to face things that make it look as though he's not in control. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be beaten and bruised and bloodied. He's about to be mocked mercilessly. He's about to be murdered, ultimately. And just before this all unfolds for us, the gospel writers want us to know that Jesus is in control of every single detail. He's not at the mercy of circumstances. He's not being swept along by chance. He is acting deliberately out of love for us and for His Father. He is fulfilling His God-given mission to save God's people. Just as Zechariah said He would all those years earlier. Zechariah 9 verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your King comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And he will fulfill that mission by laying down his life for our sins, just as the prophets said he would. So, so far, two Palm Sunday surprises a donkey, and a death. Thirdly, lastly, a decision. The crowd cheer for their king as he enters Jerusalem. They knew that he had come to bring freedom. 
but they thought that it was freedom from Roman occupation. They knew that he had come to conquer, but they thought he would conquer by raising an army to fight with the swords. Then Jesus gets into Jerusalem, and he doesn't raise up an army. He doesn't pick up a sword. The next chapter of Matthew, he is asked if it's right to pay taxes to Rome. He's asked this to kind of so that he is trapped. But there must have been some who were listening intently, thinking maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the moment he's going to say, no, don't pay anything to Rome. In fact, I have come into Jerusalem to overthrow Rome. But what he says instead is give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Then later when he is arrested, he rebukes one of his disciples for trying to fight with a sword. And so what happens to this big crowd cheering him on? Well, when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, when Jesus doesn't tick the boxes that they have for him, the crowd falls silent. And it is, as Bill said only this morning, inevitable that at least some of those who were in the crowd cheering Hosanna to the son of David when Jesus entered Jerusalem would have been in that crowd shouting, crucify him, when he stood being judged. He came not to bring an earthly political kingdom, but he came to bring the rule of God into the hearts of those who love and who serve him. And that's not what they wanted him for. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted freedom from Rome. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted a means to their end. And so they turned against him. That was their decision. And their decision poses us a question. What, what will we do in those moments where maybe Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? Or we think the Lord will do something for us and it doesn't work out the way we had hoped, the way we had expected. I wonder if you have ever faced disappointment in your Christian life you have ever had a moment or a time or a season where you have had these great expectations and they have not been met, if you have never faced that, you will at some point. And the question is, what will you do? What will you do when deep disappointment strikes? Will you accept the king on his own terms and praise him? Or when he won't meet your expectations, will you leave the crowd of worshippers and stand amongst those who wish him dead and gone and out of their lives? Well, I encourage you and myself to let God be God and let Christ be King in your disappointments as well as in your joys. Keep praising. Keep waving 
your palm branches, keep laying your cloak before the Lord. He is king and he will rule forever. And his plan is infinitely bigger and infinitely better than your plan or my plan for our lives. Let God be your God and Christ the King be Christ your King this Palm Sunday and always because He is worthy and our joy is to be found in submitting and trusting and obeying Him. Let's stand together as we sing.